Welcome once again to another edition of The Natural Slate, a joint podcast between the Central Arkansas Library System and the Arkansas Cinema Society, where we talk with Arkansas filmmakers and other people involved with film and other creative production in the state. I'm Matt DeCampel, your host once again. Our guest this time is Mark Thiedemann, who is a Arkansas filmmaker, who is also the Arkansas Cinema Society a Spotlight Filmmaker for the month of March. So thanks for being here, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start out by talking about how you got here, because like me, you are a transplant, right? You were not born in Little Rock, but you've ended right. up here. <laughs> yeah, I've been a few places. I've lived my life sort of in equal thirds in New Orleans, which is where I was born. But then I moved up here for junior high and high school, went up to New York City when I was 17, lived there for about 11 years, and then came back to make a movie. But to answer your question, how Arkansas, it's sort of a funny story. You know, being a New Yorker is really difficult and life can uh, be very distracting and it gets in the way of you making your own projects. I really honestly didn't love living there until the last last year that I was there. I made a bunch of friends in the film community. I was hanging out with film people, going to film festivals all the time, and I started to love the city. And I thought to myself, you know, I will never live anywhere except New York. And then I came home for Christmas in 2009 after a great year at the New York Film Festival, that was yeah. the year of Antichrist, of the White Ribbon, of uh, yeah. a great uh, Portuguese film called To Die Like a Man. I was loving everything. And uh, one of my best friends got married in North Carolina. Uh, she's from a very small town called Laurenburg, and I was in the wedding. So I took a plane out to North Carolina, and on the way from the wedding back to the airport to go to New York, I was driving past old churches and uh, railroads that had fallen apart and a tree that was struck by lightning. And it just dawned on me that those were the stories I wanted to tell and I couldn't make them in New York. So I got on a plane, went back to New York and called my parents and said, I'm moving home. And when you say the stories you wanted to make, you mean just kind of that aesthetic of the the South and at times kind of the broken pieces of the past and, and present? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think my movies are kind of nostalgic, and uh, they utilize classical music a lot. They're very interested in painterly lighting. Uh, they're very kind of not modern, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like, you, you'll you very rarely see a computer or a cell phone or anything like that in my movies until recently. I'm starting to branch out. <laughs> but yeah, I really love sort of elements of classical paintings of light shining through trees the way that it does you know, in sort of fantastical settings. And uh, as much as I love New York, I still consider it the best city in the world. You know, I didn't want to be a filmmaker of buildings and mass populations. And I remember, you know, right before I left New York, I was hanging out with a bunch of my film friends, including a, a guy who was then the vice president of IFC. Mm -hmm. And he bought me a glass of champagne and asked, do you want to be a regional filmmaker? And I said, I don't know, but I know I want to at least, you know, give it a go, make a, make a movie or two uh, where I was raised. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I'll just tell you one thing. The last thing we need is another New York filmmaker. There you go. That 
if you if you didn't have the uh, kind of assurance on your instinct, that probably helped uh, nail yeah. it down for you. I think it did, and you know, like a lot of my favorite movies are. Uh, not American movies and I had taken a great interest in Russian film at the time and I was watching a lot of movies by Tarkovsky and Alexander Sokurov films that take place in the mountains and empty fields and they're uh, very spiritual films that deal a lot with memory and relationship to higher powers and sort of abstract forms of spirituality and also loneliness you know loneliness within these sort of like vast landscapes and those were feelings that I felt growing up in the South, I mean, it was a very strange thing to think, I want to go back to Arkansas to make Russian movies, but that's <laughs> kind of what happened. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever does the calculus for you, I guess. Yeah. So you talked about watching a lot of Russian films at the time, but as you were growing up, leading to the point where you went from Louisiana, Arkansas, and then to New York, what spurred you or sparked you when it came to, to film and, and what first got you pointed in that direction. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I always loved movies and at the risk of kind of sounding like an art cliche, when I was a kid, I didn't have a whole lot of friends and, you know, I had all sorts of social anxieties and didn't really feel comfortable going to parties and being, mm -hmm. you know, normal, <laughs> whatever it's, it's that called, is. It's called being an introvert. It's completely normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I mean, I was a very intense introvert. So at the time, the way that I would spend my uh, spare time was to go to Blockbuster Video or a family video down the street, and <laughs> they would always have three, four, five VHS movie rentals. Yeah. And I think I watched something like six movies a week. Uh, and I started going through, you know, all of the old Siskel and Ebert top 10 lists. Yeah. <clears throat> And sort of watching what uh, people thought were good movies and and then started making my own little obsessive lists <laughs> as, you know, we film geeks do. Right. And I kind of thought that I wanted to be a film critic. Okay. But then all of a sudden in 1996, a movie came out called Breaking the Waves, uh, which was a, by Lars von Trier. Uh, and it was a movie that seemed very, very different for me. First of all, it's a film that deals with subject matter that's very close to my heart. It's about a young girl who's a Calvinist woman, very, very religious, and she's in love with a man, her husband, who encounters an accident and is paralyzed. Mm. And she believes that the reason that he was paralyzed is because she was praying too hard for him to return to her. Ah. And so she sort of takes on the burden of having caused this and, and takes it upon herself to ask God for a miracle to, to kind of revive him. But what's great about this movie is that it was shot with no lights. It was shot on film and transferred to video and transferred back to film and back to video. So it has a very degraded look. It was shot on handheld cameras. It breaks all sorts of rules of cinema, the 180 rule, uh, uh, ways of cutting it jump cuts throughout. It does not rely on what we would call classical Hollywood techniques. Mm -hmm. And explain the 180 rule for those who aren't as versed in Oh, yeah, in absolutely. Uh, I mean, the idea of the 180 rule is that essentially if you are setting up your camera in one place to observe a scene and then you're cutting to another shot, you want that shot to be positioned from an angle that does not cross a 180 degree axis. Essentially, the idea is that the way that a film cuts mimics the way that we actually see the world and mm -hmm. we have, you know, 120 degree field of vision and then it sort of alters 30 degrees here and there but we can't suddenly flip and turn the other direction yeah right yeah. breaking the waves is a movie that proves that 
we can still make sense of things even mm -hmm. without those silly kind of arbitrary rules. But what I loved about it was that it was an ugly movie. It's, I mean, it's a movie about cosmic things, huge things like love and God and, and loneliness and judgment and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was shot with this sort of really rough handheld aesthetic and no lights and no crazy equipment and and it was a story I loved so much I thought to myself not only do I want to be a filmmaker so I can tell stories like this but all of a sudden being a filmmaker seemed possible and then a couple of years later we were shooting on video and then it actually was possible and obviously like all or most filmmakers you start out with basically no money uh, right. But you found, and maybe partially because of what you saw in Breaking the Waves, that you kind of were drawn to that stuff. You liked the simplicity and efficiency that you got with having kind of a bare bones operation. Absolutely. I don't like working with a lot of people. I've been on a lot of film sets, and I, I see a lot of small independent productions trying to bring in tons and tons of people thinking that it's going to make the shoot move smoothly, and it just never does. Mm -hmm. I prefer to work with a small group of people for a number of reasons. I like to have people around me that I trust. I don't like noise. I like to run very quiet sets. I have to like be able to have a kind of meditative experience <laughs> with my actors, and I don't like clutter, right? But also I have my, uh, my fingers in all the pies, as it were. Uh, I'm involved in the costume design in my films. I am very, very adamant about the way that my movies look. I, uh, for Alex in the Morning, the new film, uh, there's a lookbook for that movie that's 45 pages of wow. images that were just handed off to my director of photography. And I like to control things, and I think it's easier to control things with a small group, but it's also certainly cost-effective. Yeah. And the good thing about uh, working with a small budget on top of all of that is that I'm really not restricted creatively. The more money a movie gets, the more people you have waving their fingers at you and telling right. you, you have to clear how you and... should do things. And if I listen to every person who told me what an audience wants... <laughs> and how you make a movie commercially successful. I probably wouldn't be making movies anymore, but I think that I've broken all those rules, done things my way, and still <laughs> found success. So that's <laughs> I, maybe. It's some justification for it, yeah. I think yeah. so, or yeah. at least an encouragement to young filmmakers who also um, feel that making movies is impossible. I mean, it's a huge undertaking, and and it's expensive and stressful. I guess, if anything, I hope that my movies are an example that you can definitely do it on your own terms. And, and you talk about, like in a quiet set and, and kind of a meditative atmosphere. Does that, because I know that some actors will say that one of the benefits of having a leaner production is you have less time in between takes. You can stay in a scene and stay in character easy. You know, do you shoot for that efficiency as well, or is it, it very much a very deliberative, like you said, a meditative, maybe a little slower pace? Uh, it is a slower pace, but it, it sort of depends on the person that you're working with. I mean, all sorts of people work differently. Different actors work in different ways. The way that you direct one person is not the way that you direct another person. But I'm the kind of person that wants people to feel very comfortable and feel very respected and kind of honored in their own creativity. And if I work with an actor who wants to do another take because they feel that they have something inside of them that I don't know about, we need to have time to give them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I would I would never say no to an actor. So uh, when you pare things down and, and, and you take things slower, I find that you... Um, 
you create an environment of trust. And you mentioned trust before. Is that kind of part of your screening process when you're picking actors for a movie? Obviously, you want the the strong acting talent, but it sounds like you also kind of need that uh, emotional connection that, okay, we're going to be able to understand each other on set very well. Yeah, that's primary. I mean, most of the people that I work with are not actors. In Alex in the Morning, the new film, the lead actor, Harrison Trigg, has a lot of experience, and he really went above and beyond to transform himself into a different person. But I think that when you're working on an independent level, you have to understand that not everyone has to be a Meryl Streep. Right. You don't have to be able to completely turn yourself into a different person. And in a lot of times when I'm making a movie, uh, I, I think that there's a documentary aspect to casting. I cast people because they already are the person, because I know that they'll understand the person. Uh, I, I keep referring to the new movie, but as an example, uh, there's a young musician from Springfield uh, named Benji Schlack, who I found on Facebook a long time ago and then listened to his SoundCloud. And there was something about his music that I, I really responded to. They're all sort of sad songs about love, you know written in a bedroom with a guitar and uh, we started talking and became friends and I wrote a character in this movie who had pink hair and uh, was sort of that sad romantic emo boy and in the original script his name was Sebastian and and just out on a limb I was like hey I've never actually met you Benji but just on the chance just on the off chance that you might say yes I have to ask you would you play this character in the movie he said yes immediately and then I changed the character's name to Benji he just plays himself you know yeah and I think that that's true of, of pretty much everybody in that movie, uh, Harrison accepted. I, I find people beautiful and fascinating, and in a lot of cases, I'm inspired to make a movie just because I see someone and I like something about their personality or mm -hmm. they have this like sort of strange little twinkle about them. And it occurs to me I've, I've got to write something for them. So in a lot of cases, this isn't even casting. It's just pure on ins inspiration. And... So how many movies now have you made in Arkansas since you came back? Alex is the eighth. Okay. Not including, you know, some commercial work here and there. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, uh, but yeah, Alex is the eighth. I have the feature last summer mm -hmm. and uh, the sort of pseudo feature, White Nights, which is a very strange length. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what it counts as, uh, but uh, the rest are all shorts, yeah. And... Do you feel like, you know, because you talk about the amount of control you want on set, but at, at some point, obviously, if you're going to push yourself toward broader horizons, productions are going to grow. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, you're going to get into as much as you hope to kind of craft your own system, you know, are, do you think that you're in the right place where if someone came in and, you know, dropped a good angel investment on you or something that you could you could work within that that bigger scope and a bigger production that and still get that feel that you like with the with the smaller, you know, with what you've got now. I mean, absolutely. The most expensive thing that I've worked on uh, since I've been in Arkansas was actually not one of my movies. It was a, a commercial that I directed. And it was actually really exciting for me to have trucks pull up yeah. and equipment to be pulled out. I've never had <laughs> trucks appear on my film sets, but I'm happy to do it for other people. And and I like that environment. It can be exciting. It's just I, I, I consider my films at 
the moment art projects. But when you contextualize a film as something bigger, when you understand uh, that there's more money, more resources, you sort of adapt to that. But one thing that I can say is that I've essentially, over the course of eight films, been auditioning people that I love working with. And whether the movie costs $5 or $5 million, I know that there are some people that I want to take with me that I really love and that I trust. And as long as I have those people around me, the amount of money the movie costs really doesn't matter. Oh, good. So when you moved back in 2009, the Little Rock Film Festival started to hit its stride. And, and, and you started to get that connection of filmmakers. And, of course, that continued to grow and, and until it kind of petered out. And then you had Kaleidoscope coming along then mm-hmm. at the same time. And now you've got Cinema Society. How much do events like that mean to someone like you as far as making the connections and, and, and meeting people and finding those relationships that you later are going to want as part of a, a production? And that's a great question. I guess I could start with the Little Rock Film Festival uh, because that is really how I met everyone uh, in the film community. I had a movie in 2010 called A Christian Boy uh, that showed along with movies by Daniel Campbell and Jonathan Crawford and the Miller Brothers, uh, people that I didn't know at the time. I was kind of surprised uh, that my movie made it into the festival, Uh, first of all, because it was shot on standard definition uh, digital videotapes, and I hadn't yet, you know, pushed myself into the world of DSLRs and (laughs) 1080p. But it was also a movie about a boy who was kind of having a sexual awakening when he sees a man who looks like Jesus, which is... I mean, on paper, that seems very controversial. The movie movie itself isn't. But I thought, you know, maybe people in Arkansas won't like this. But I think I showed that movie and people sort of scratched their heads a little bit. And then I started talking to them about it and my process of making films, which is a little different from other people's, admittedly. But all of a sudden, I was friends with all of these people, and they were supporting my work. And then all of a sudden, they were donating on Indiegogo. And then I had made a feature, and then I was showing that feature. And year by year, I was back at Little Rock Film Festival and uh, continuing these friendships. And I support all of those guys so much. They're just, they're really amazing filmmakers and really great people. I was sad to see the Little Rock Film Festival go. Kaleidoscope is a festival that's very dear to me. I'm the artistic director of Kaleidoscope. Yes. Uh, Kaleidoscope is an LGBT film festival that aims to appeal to everyone. Uh, we're, we're not interested in the sort of exclusivity of LGBT film festivals that happen around uh, the country. We want to shine a light on work even made by our allies. But it's a film festival that is very much in line with my tastes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, no. What happens when you get to be artistic director. <laughs> right. I mean, there's something for everybody at that festival for sure. But it's something very different. I mean, we show a type of movie that does not get screened in Arkansas very often. I'm very proud of that festival. There were movies that we showed last year, like God's Own Country, which was called one of the 15 best films of the year by Sight and Sound magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, or The Wound, which was shortlisted as one of the potential foreign language film Oscar nominees. Films like that are great movies, and they just won't show in Arkansas anywhere else. And I'm I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to share them with people. I think people really love those movies, and we're going to do it again this year, which will be great. 
And I'm also really, really excited about the Arkansas Cinema Society. I think that Arkansas Cinema Society is making great strides to create a social environment for filmmakers to meet each other and to to be inspired by each other, really, and to use other people as resources to help them in their own work. I was really, really honored that they asked me to do this screening, and not only to do the screening of Alex in the Morning, but giving me an opportunity to show one of my favorite movies, Paranoid Park. I mean, if making movies is my first love, showing people movies I love was my second <laughs> yeah, love. So they I really, think a lot of us are not, even I if we mean, don't make films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look at what I like. <laughs> yeah, what a, what an opportunity. I'm so excited. And I can imagine with uh, Kaleidoscope too, you know, everyone talks about with Little Rock Film Festival, as far as filmmakers or people in the film industry and with Cinema Society, how much the, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, the movies were great, the movies were this, but the friends that I made and the connections that I made really steered. I can imagine with, kaleidoscope you know that's even a more narrow group as far as you know the arkansas filmmaking scene it obviously is not as big as other states but the lgbt arkansas filmmaking scene has to be even kind of more niche and and to find people that you don't know you know that you can network and work with has to be a valuable part of that festival as well well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you have to look at Kaleidoscope as being a little bit different. The Little Rock Film Festival was very much a filmmaker's film festival. Uh, it was a social event for filmmakers to meet each other. And I think that a lot of the events at Arkansas Cinema Society have the same goal, which is a wonderful goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're absolutely right in saying that there's a very narrow community of LGBT filmmakers in Little Rock, at Central Arkansas, Arkansas in general. Uh, however, I do think that filmmakers from any group could benefit from seeing these movies and I would encourage them to go. Yeah. I would love to see Kaleidoscope uh, evolve to a film festival where uh, filmmakers took it as an opportunity to meet other filmmakers. But really, Kaleidoscope has a mission statement that goes beyond simply creating a social environment for filmmakers to shake hands. Uh, we are a film festival that is aiming to branch out even from film. We're very interested in all of the arts and and modes of representation. So we last year introduced a literary element. We had Armistead Maupin come into town to talk about his work. Uh, we had a night of poetry readings. We had a gallery exhibition by my friend Michael Schaefer. And we're doing a lot of things like that again this year, including involving other forms of media that I'm not going to talk about yet. But I'm really, really excited about the way that we're using film as a starting point to branch off into discussion of all art forms and the way that art forms represent all people. Mm -hmm. So it starts with film and it starts with LGBT and then it goes into visual art and poetry and dance and women and men and people of all ages, all races. So I think that as we expand, we're going to become a, a festival that appeals to people as a social event that's not geared only as filmmakers, but also artists in general. Yeah. Uh, I hope that it's a f- festival where painters will come and shake hands and uh, advertisers will come and shake hands and poets will come and shake hands and filmmakers will come and shake hands. But we have to approach things a little bit differently, certainly because of the LGBT sure. content to the festival. Yeah. And. I mean, you talked about how particular you are about films that you like and things. And, of course, some of us, even in Tribune ourselves, would might use the word film snob maybe from time yeah. to time. But I read an interview with you after you moved back to Arkansas where you talked about some of the, the shorts that you were seeing that to you were just as good, if not better, than what you were seeing on the on the New York scene. And, and what did you think? Do you think it's kind of the freedom that people have to pursue their own visions in, in Arkansas or in the South that feeds that? Or what do you think is at that core? 
I think now looking back on it, I would think, of course, there are films that are as good being made in Arkansas as there are in New York. Yeah. To, for anyone to assume that living in New York makes you a more talented person is just absurd. <laughs> of course there are. And and we have very unique stories. I mean, listen, my, my favorite movies come from Taiwan and Iran and Russia, as we mentioned, and, you know, Africa. Um I'm very interested Argentina. Uh, I'm, I'm, I had to throw that in. Uh, I'm very interested in stories about other places, places that I haven't necessarily been to before, and getting to know people. I think much of what I know of the world I've learned through watching the films of other nations and other people. Uh, I think it's made me a more empathetic person and a more curious person. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that we have here in the South is that we're telling really unique stories. They're very beautiful stories. They're very specific to a place. Arkansas is a place with a really fantastic geography, and it's unusual and gorgeous and uh, peaceful and and also divided. It, I don't think it should surprise anyone that the stories that come out of a place like this would be as compelling as those that you would find anywhere else. And, of course, you have fewer people just per capita telling those stories as you do in New York. Everyone trying to use, like you said, the same buildings, the same city, the same settings to try to find something new and, and creative to show. Yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely. But I, I think also, you know, we we also have a great number of natural resources here in Arkansas. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of raw talent. I've worked with incredible actors, incredible photographers, incredible sound people. But also just look at it. I mean, there's there are so many places in Arkansas that you just want to put on film. Right. Uh, I'm I'm at the University of Central Arkansas right now pursuing a master's, and I'm about to start working on a documentary. And I won't tell you too much about it, but essentially, I'm getting in my car and just driving through Arkansas and taking pictures of abandoned places. Mm because I want to make a movie about them because yeah. because Arkansas is so cinematic because there are these houses and towns where no one lives where people once existed and um, there's something just so mysterious and great yeah, about I, it. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the appeal? Because that sounds a lot like that car trip back to the airport in, in North Carolina and, and mm -hmm. seeing not just the cinematic things but kind of the the relics and remains of, of the past. And is that part of the draw to you is just you know, just imagining the history or trying to capture some of that that history that that once was and is is now gone. I mean, I can't really explain this, but I I find a lot of solace in the experience of being alone in a place where people once were. Okay, I think that that's a whole other conversation <laughs> because I don't <laughs> know what I would say at this point. Uh, it's a feeling. I don't know how you describe a feeling. But I think that Arkansas is a place that has a lot of sort of retreats, as it were. Sure. Uh, New York is a city that's all hustle and bustle. And I used to, I, I got very addicted to extremely slow paced movies when I lived in New York because mm -hmm. everybody talks about how, um, you know, you go to the films, the films to escape. Right. Like and I think a lot of times in Arkansas, people think of a film as escape, as being a film with lots of car chases and things like that, that you don't experience in everyday life. But right. when I was in New York that's on what the subway every day, <laughs> yep. I wanted no dialogue. <laughs> I wanted 10 minute long shots. I wanted sparse sound design. I want to hear and see as little as possible. <laughs> and then 
I moved to Arkansas, I realized that I could actually do all of those things. I love, you know, being on the river for eight hours with my friends and not talking. So I think that Arkansas, uh, it has these really rich and beautiful quiet spaces mm-hmm. where you can sit down and relax and enter a kind of meditative experience and clear your head of all of the sadness and suffering and pain and everything. But I also love feeling connected to the fact that there were stories of pain and suffering in all of the places that we just walk through. And I don't know, it makes me feel less alone. <laughs> and you talk about the liking the visual style of the, you know, not only the beauty, but the long shots. So when you're making a film in Arkansas, how much of your shooting is the actors in the script and how much, like what's the ratio between that and then just getting all the, you know, the, the other shots that you want to show like you say, you know, emotions through scenery and and buildings and things like that. Well, the movies are increasingly narrative, I think. I don't know how to really explain that. The movies are very calculated. Okay. They might come off as being largely improvised, and in some cases they are. Last summer, the feature uh, has long stretches that are improvised. We would just find a place that was very evocative and just go and explore it and set up, you know, series of shots. But Every image that you'll see in Alex in the Morning has a storyboard that correlates with it. Narcissus, my last movie that we showed at Kaleidoscope last year, uh, is a 12-minute short that just tells the story of Echo and Narcissus. There's no dialogue in it, which might make people think that I was just sort of setting up a camera and getting pretty shots. I guarantee you every shot in that movie has a storyboard that was uh, a corollary. So the movies are calculated. Also at the same time, though, I don't like things being too calculated. I uh, I have a reputation for throwing things away when I get on set. I'll give people a 45-page book of images and storyboards and say, mm-hmm. just forget you ever saw it. Um, <laughs> I like ripping things off the wall. Because I think that as a filmmaker, you have to be open to possibility. You know what I mean? We can't predict what the world is going to throw at you, what an actor is going to throw at you. You never know if an image that just happens on set is going to be more beautiful than the one that you have in your head. And you have to be open to that. I certainly will throw away things that I have in mind and go and explore and look for things that are even superior to what I had imagined. But at the end of the day, those things are taking the place of a thing that I had planned to do and the structure remains there. Does that yeah. does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's a wrong. It's a yeah. quiz. <laughs> it's a movie quiz. <laughs> wrong. Next question. Uh, <laughs> so what what's after? Uh, what comes after Alex? I mean, obviously you talked about the, the the doc you're working on while you're obtaining your master's, but are, do you have other? projects already forming in your head or are you kind of uh, looking to see where the road takes you? Well, as part of the master's program, I have to make my thesis film Mm -hmm. and I'm very excited about it. I was talking about how I make movies that don't have a lot of technology. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the exact opposite. I decided to make a movie about growing up in the 90s uh, when the internet was first mainstreamed. Oh, okay. Uh, So it's a movie of dial-up modems and that weird DOS font, that sort yes. of jagged 8-bit yeah. white lettering. So I'm very excited about that. It's very new for me. It replaces classical music with industrial music, and the boys wear black eyeliner and safety pins as earrings. So I'm very excited. <laughs> that sounds like the ni- 90s I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's next, and then uh, then we'll see. At that point, I think it's time for me to dive into another feature. And you plan to do that here? 
I would love to do it here if I have the resources to do it. Of here. course, of course. Yeah, you got it. Something you do, even with uh, even with the the, the stripped down uh, crew size and all that kind of stuff, you still have to go where your resources. Are. Well, yeah. I mean, a feature is hard, and oh, yeah. you know, uh, last summer was a great experience, but we made that movie for a very little amount of money, and everybody that worked on it worked for free. And I think that every, uh, all of my friends would be more than happy to make another movie the same way. You know, we don't do this for the money; we do because we love it and my friends are great artists and they take their art very seriously but I do think that uh, going into another feature I mean not to get all businessy but I want to see my friends get paid of course we all do yeah yeah when you're working creatively on stuff no it's that's completely understandable so I I've got to go back to the 90s movie for a second because <laughs> I got to think that you're going to be working with and around some people in your <laughs> troop of of crew who don't have that deep of a memory of the 90s. <laughs> I think that uh, the actors from that movie probably will not have been born. Yeah. Um, so how do you prep them for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how much do I want to give away? Uh, it, it's a it's a movie about uh, growing up gay in a small town in Arkansas, okay. and at the time that experience was very lonely and very threatening. And uh, we lived in a world in which gay people were constantly reminded of threats to their life, uh, whether it was uh, the AIDS crisis or massive bullying mm -hmm. or people uh, being killed in horrifying hate crimes or an intensely high suicide rate. Uh, life was very depressing at the time. Uh, but then the internet came and people were sort of mainstreamed. And I remember the first person that I came out to was someone that I met through a chat room. And so I, I started to think about chat rooms and, and what impact they've kind of had on our culture. And now I look at all of these dating apps that kids are on, the Tinder and the Grinder, And there are some that just I baffle me. <laughs> um, but I think that all of those uh, those little dating apps that people are sort of swiping left and right on had their roots in those sort of 90s chat rooms. Uh, so I think I would kind of explain it to them as science fiction, you know, using the past as science fiction. I think it would be easier for them to imagine a world in which Tinder was like a building that you walked into and had some sort of virtual experience with right. another human being or something like that. Uh, but the, the other form of sci-fi is this, the the kind of interpolated form where we look back at the origin and it seems really bizarre and strange and yet so similar. Yeah. You know? So yeah. So it's, it's an origin story of sorts of where these kids are now. <laughs> I'm telling them their history. You're telling them their history. <laughs> yeah. And I assume you'll have a, a good technical advisor on who can tell them, yeah, that's not how you turn on a modem. That's not how, you know. That's, yes, yeah. yes, the boot up is supposed to take a minute and a half. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, the 13-minute. Um, yeah. so, somebody picks up the cordless phone in your house. Right. Mom, off the get internet. off the phone. <laughs> on the um, internet. Uh, I remember those days. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. I was on YouTube the other day. Uh, searching for dial-up modem sounds. Oh, there's got to be a ton. When I heard that sound yeah. that I have not heard since 1999, I almost cried. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very excited. I, I'm making a movie of little flashing red lights and yeah. screeching noise. I, where did those modem sounds come from? 
terrifying. I, I, yeah, but I, I guess whatever you had to do to make it work through the phone cord. And all <laughs> the, I, I, I at the time was baffled but pleased that it that it worked. And, right. Yeah. Do you remember when emails cost twenty five cents? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Kids my these parents, days, they have it so uh, good. My parents would come into my room occasionally and be like, Mark, the prodigy bill is $88. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just because I sent people mail. I was just emailing people. Yeah, it was like it was a digital stamp back then you had to pay for to send your letters. So if you're, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, you may or may not get to uh, attend the actual screening, but that is coming up the weekend of the 16th. It's on the 16th, isn't it? Or the 17th? It is on the 16th. It is on the 16th. Yeah. Friday the 16th at Ron Robinson Theater. Uh, Central Arkansas Library System is hosting it there for us. And you can see Mark's new short, Alex in the Morning, that you've heard him talk about. And then, as he said, there will be a screening of Gus Van Zandt's uh, Paranoid Park. And, uh, of course, discussion with, uh, with Mark and his cast and crew and some others, a part of that as well, which is something we always try to do with Arkansas Cinema Society events is to give people uh, not only the film experience but the interactive experience with the, the people behind the film. Uh, if you're listening to this after the screen, what's the, the best way to find you and your work out there on the – I mean, I know you have a, a Vimeo channel, but uh, what's the, the easiest way for, for people to, to connect with what you do? To make a note of uh, the fact that I'll be reconstructing my website. Ah, <laughs> I'm ter- okay. I, yeah, I, um, I'm I'm a terrible self marketer. That's a horrible thing. I need to learn this. This is a problem with artists all over the place. But yeah. um, I will be spending a lot of time this summer making my work available. I'm also really interested in new ways of getting shorts out there. I think a lot of people never show their shorts. You know, mm-hmm. There are filmmakers that I love who have made short films that I would love to see, and they're just nowhere. And I think that the internet is a great platform for that. So I'm sort of going through a drawing board of figuring out how I want my short work to be available and in what format. And once I figure that out, you know, find me on Facebook. There will be a, <laughs> there you there go. Will be a link. Everyone's on Facebook. Facebook, Instagram, there will be a link in bio sometime this summer. And and, and Thetamin is a rare enough name. I got to think it's pretty easy to find you. Yeah, I I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And of course, you can always uh, find more information on the Arkansas Cinema Society's website, ArkansasCinemaSociety.org. You can find tickets for the for the screening if this is if you're hearing this before the 16th or if for any of the events after that. Obviously, there's lots of great resources available through the Central Arkansas Library System as well. Uh, Cals.org. You can listen to many of the other podcasts uh, that we have. Natural Slate is actually the youngest of the uh, podcast family at Cal's. So uh, check that out as well. What's the uh, website for Kaleidoscope for people that want more information about that? It's kal2018.com. Kal2018.com. It's it's tough to have a 10-letter web address anymore, so well done with that. <laughs> They're usually incredibly long. Uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you for being here, Mark. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Especially you. for someone who likes quiet meditation so much to get you to talk for 40 minutes. I feel like I've accomplished something. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> we'll catch you next time and enjoy your day and check out more episodes of The Natural Slate. The Natural Slate is produced in partnership with the Arkansas Cinema Society by the Central Arkansas Library System, its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies, and its Communications and Public Relations Department. The producer is Glenn Whaley, and the production manager is Anna Lancaster. For more information, visit cals.org or butlercenter.org.